Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. As we continue our series in 1 Peter, we'll be in verses 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Years ago at uh, the National Prayer Breakfast, the National Security Advisor at the time, Condoleezza Rice, she said this, we are living through a time of testing and consequence and praying that our wisdom and will are equal to the work before us. And it is at times like these that we are reminded of a paradox, that it is a privilege to struggle. American slaves used to sing, nobody knows the trouble I've seen, glory, hallelujah. She said, growing up, I would often wonder at the seeming contradiction contained in this line. But as I grew older, I came to learn that there is no contradiction at all. Why can you rejoice in the midst of painful trials? Why is there not a contradiction between joy and painful trial? J.I. Packer describes suffering this way. This is a great definition. He says, suffering is getting what you don't want and not getting what you do want. Now, where is joy to be found in getting what you don't want? Where is joy to be found in not getting what you do want? Why can't you rejoice in the midst of painful trials? It's because painful trial reveals, proclaims, is evidence of two very, very powerful truths. And the first truth is this, God is with you. God is with you in the painful trial. Look at verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Peter says, when the fiery trial comes, when the painful trial comes, you're blessed. That word actually means happy. It's the same word that Jesus uses in the Beatitudes when he said, blessed 
are those who, in other words, happy. It's the same, happy are those who. The word means happy. It means that when painful trial comes, you're filled with joy, or you're to be filled with joy. But, but why? Why does joy come in the midst of trial? Well, it's because the Spirit of God, the Spirit of glory, rests upon you. Now that phrase, the Spirit of glory rests upon you, teaches us two powerful truths about God's presence. And the first is the reassurance of his presence. There's a reassurance in the midst of trial. That phrase, spirit of glory resting upon you, that conjures up a temple imagery. That's Old Testament language. In the Old Testament, the physical temple was the place where God's presence dwelled with his people. The spirit of God, the spirit of glory, came and dwelled in the temple. But the physical structure of the temple was always pointing forward to a deeper and greater reality. And that was the temple of Jesus' body. That's why Jesus said in his earthly ministry, he said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. He was speaking of his body. Isaiah 11.2 says, in the spirit of the Lord, right, the spirit of God, the spirit of glory shall rest upon him, speaking of Jesus. So you go from the physical structure of the Old Testament temple where God's presence dwelled to the temple of Jesus' body where God's presence dwelled, but it goes even further to then the temple of the bodies of those who follow Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? So from the Old Testament temple to the body of Jesus to the bodies of those who follow Christ, the Spirit of God rests upon you. Now, how do you know that? What's the evidence that the Spirit of glory, the Spirit of God rests upon you? In some circles, the answer would be potentially wealth or success right, or health, those would be evidences or indicators that the Spirit of God is, is resting upon you, that you are blessed. And yet Peter says here just the opposite. Peter says the evidence that the Spirit of God rests upon you is painful trial. That that is the evidence that you are blessed, that the Spirit of God rests upon you. Now, how often do we interpret painful trial in just the opposite way? That painful trial is evidence of God's absence, right? Or maybe God just kind of removing his presence. That's how in the book of Job in the Old Testament, Job's friends interpreted Job's painful trial. Job was inflicted with all kinds of painful trial and his friends looked at him and said, hey, Job, what are you doing wrong? Like, Job, you're doing something wrong. Well, I mean, why, why is God sending this upon you? Why is he removing himself? You're, you're doing something wrong. And the reality was, Job was suffering for doing good. 
In the same way that Peter is addressing here, these believers that are suffering for doing good, they're suffering for the name of Christ. He's not talking about suffering that's a result of our sin. He makes that clear in verse 15. He says, let none of you suffer as a murderer, right, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a, a meddler. Right? He's talking about suffering for doing good, and he says, your painful trial is evidence that God is with you. I remember in my wife's first trimester, first pregnancy, you know, those first 12 weeks can be tenuous. As you wonder, is, is the baby okay and are things okay? And, and in between appointments, in between checkups, in between ultrasounds, at least one of the ways that you, or one of the evidences that the baby is alive and okay is pain, nausea, sickness. I remember in that first trimester, there was a, a season in between checkups where there was a little bit of doubt and concern with my wife and I. And then I remember the, the morning, the next morning she woke up. She felt awful. She wanted to throw up. And we both had smiles on our faces. Right? That, that, that pain, the pain of sickness, was evidence that the baby was with us. The baby was okay. Peter says, your painful trial, your painful suffering is evidence that God is with you, is evidence that the Spirit of God is resting upon you. So that phrase, the, the Spirit of glory, resting upon you teaches the reassurance of God's presence. But it also teaches the joy, the joy of God's presence. Look at verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. The word rejoice shows up three times in that verse alone, three times. And the phrase or the word be glad means to be extremely joyful. So Peter is reinforcing joy, joy, extreme joy in the midst of the trial. And notice what he ties or attaches the joy to. The joy is tied to when his glory is revealed. When the glory of Jesus Christ is revealed, when Christ returns, that's what he attaches the joy to. If you're in Christ, you will experience unimaginable joy when you stand face to face with him. Every joy that we experience here on earth is but a parable of the joy we will experience in the presence of Jesus Christ one day. And what Peter says in verse 14 is the spirit of glory, the spirit, the Holy Spirit of the glory of Christ 
rests on you in the present in your painful trial. That that unimaginable joy that you will experience in the presence of Christ pulls into the present by the Holy Spirit in the midst of your painful trial. Now you say, well, how does that work? How does that work? What are we talking about here? Are we talking about masochism? No, which is just, you, this pain feels so good. I'm just rejoicing in this pain. Oh, this joy is just amazing in this pain I'm feeling. No, of course not. Painful trial is painful. The pain is real. This is not saying just, hey, just, it, it's not painful. It's just all joy. No, that's not what Peter's saying here. He recognizes it's painful. In fact, we'll get to that down in verse 18. He he recognizes that it's a painful journey. But what he's saying is that the joy that you will experience when Christ returns, when his glory is revealed, is actually pulled into the present in your painful trial. Because your painful trial points you to that glory. Let me try to illustrate it this way. It's a foretaste. You ever been on a a road trip? I want you to imagine. Just pick the road trip you've been on where you can't wait to get to the destination. The the destination, where you're headed is just, your heart leaps with joy when you think about getting to this destination. Now imagine on the way you get lost. Shortly before you get there, you get lost and you're on back roads and you're making turns and you don't know where you're at. And the despair sets in and the frustration sets in. And if you're in the car with more than just you, everybody's bickering. Why'd you make that turn? It's just everything breaks down. But then imagine you see a landmark this familiar. And you see that landmark and you know as you pass it, you go, what? we're back on the path. We're headed to the destination. What happens when you see that landmark? All the despair, all the frustration, all the sadness, when you see that landmark turns into instant joy, your heart leaps for joy. You're not there yet to the destination, but you know that landmark is evidence that you're on the path and that you're gonna get there. And the joy of that destination pulls into the present when you see that landmark. What Peter is saying is suffering is Painful trial is evidence that you're on the path to glory. And the suffering or the painful trial is like that landmark. That when you see it and when you experience it, yes, it's painful, but your heart leaps for joy because you know you're on the path to glory and your heart is responding to an eternal reality that outlasts death. And that when you recognize that, when you recognize that eternal reality, that glory that you're headed towards that outlasts death, then that joy, that future joy, pulls into the present in in a way that it's actually a foretaste. It's like when you're smoking meat on the grill. And right before you're going to take it off, or maybe a little bit of time before you take it off, you want to check it. You open the grill, and you pull a piece off, and you taste it. 
and it's amazing. Just a foretaste of that big meal that's coming. That's, what, that's the picture Peter's painting here of painful trial, of suffering, suffering for Christ, suffering for doing good. It's a foretaste. It's the reassurance. It's the reassurance of God's presence, his spirit resting upon you. And it's the, it's the reminder in the bringing of the joy, the foretaste of joy that's coming when the glory of Jesus is revealed in fullness. And so painful trial is evidence that God is with you. But second, it's not just evidence that he's with you, but it's evidence that he is remaking you. That he's remaking you. You say, how? How does this happen? Well, look at verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. You're being remade through judgment. Now, now you should probably respond to that and go, really? I mean, I, I would think of the judgment of God crushing me, not remaking me. Let's start in verse 12. Look at verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. And that word test means to examine, right? To examine you. The word fiery or fiery trial, that, that symbol of fire is throughout the scriptures oftentimes symbolizing the judgment of God. Symbolizing the judgment of God. So one example of that would be in Malachi chapter three. In Malachi three, it says this about God's judgment. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Again, there's the imagery. Spirit of the Lord will descend, come upon the temple. Spirit of God resting on the temple. For he is like a refiner's fire. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. The judgment that God is speaking about or that Peter speaks about here as the judgment of God, is a judgment that doesn't consume, although he gets into it when he refers to those outside of Christ. But for the church, for the body, he speaks of judgment as a refining process, as a purifying process. That judgment at the core really is pictured well for those that are in Christ, like the refining of a precious metal as we see in Malachi 3, that when gold, when the, when the heat rises and, and ratchets up, it removes the impurities so that what's left is pure gold. The judgment of God, just simply put, is his commitment and action to remove what doesn't belong in his good world, is to remove the impurity, the sin, the broken, that's, that's the judgment of God. It removes the cancer that's eating away at his good world. If you're in Christ, his judgment is a purifying process. If you're not in Christ, it's a consuming process. You're removed. If you're in Christ, you're not removed, but your sin and impurity is removed. 
And so what Peter says here is that judgment will begin in the house of God. So the judgment of Christ's return, when Christ returns, there will be judgment and instantaneous purification of those that are in Christ. If you're in Christ, when, when he returns, you will instantaneously be made perfect. The impurity, the sin will just instantaneously be gone. But what Peter's saying is that instantaneous judgment at the end of time when Christ returns intrudes into history in the life of the believer through suffering. That, that judgment that removes what doesn't belong actually begins in history, in your life, in the form of suffering. That God begins the process of remaking you. God's already working the process of remaking you. And that happens through suffering. In her book, A Place of Healing, Johnny Erickson Tata reflects on how we, we worry. Oftentimes we worry that the cares, the troubles, the afflictions of life will wear us down. That they'll dull our joy, dilute our hope, rob us of the radiance that we once had. She writes, it's actually just the opposite. She says, it isn't the hurts, blows, and bruises that rob us of the freshness of Christ's beauty in our lives. More likely, it's careless ease, empty pride, earthly preoccupation, too much prosperity that will put layers of dirty film over our souls. Then she goes on to illustrate this uh, by telling the story of when she went to visit the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. And she said she walked up to this cathedral, this just amazingly gorgeous, massive, thousand-year-old structure. And she said it was so black and filthy. She said it was covered with black grime and soot and dirt. She said you could barely even tell the detail and the, and, and the, the carvings and all that made it so beautiful. But she learned that it was about to go undergo a restoration project after she visited, and they did. For one year, they erected scaffolding around the cathedral, and they sandblasted it for a year. And she remarks on how she, after it was done, she looked at the pictures, and she said it almost looked like a different cathedral. She said it was, it was beautiful. It was shining. It was golden. It was all the intricate carvings and the details you could see. It was just absolutely beautiful. And then she went on to say, suffering is what God uses to sandblast our lives. To sandblast the layers of film and dirt and sin and impurity that God uses suffering to sandblast us. She describes it this way. There's nothing like real hardships to strip off the veneer in which you and I so carefully cloak ourselves. Heartache and physical pain reach below the superficial, surface places of our lives, stripping away years of accumulated indifference and neglect. When pain and problems press up 
against a holy God. Suffering can't help but strip away years of dirt. Affliction has a way of jackhammering our character. Shaking us up and loosening our grip on everything we hold tightly. And as we're shaken up and and the, the film is removed, then we're filled with Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, that process of being remade, intellectually, you can sign off on it and go, I get it. But when you're in the midst, the middle of being sandblasted, it raises some questions. Is this sandblasting going to destroy me? Does God really know what he's doing here? Does he understand I'm getting towards the edge of the cliff? Can I trust him? Right, the process of being remade is founded upon and undergirded by the character of the remaker, and it has to be. The character of the remaker. Look at, look at verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will. Again, this is suffering for doing good. Will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That word entrust, it means to set before. Literally, to set before. Or to commit oneself to the care of another. Think about if you take a loved one, a child or a loved one to the hospital for surgery. And you know that moment that they take your loved one and they wheel him or her back to the operating room. And that's the moment you stand there and you understand that you've entrusted your loved one to the surgeon. And rightly so, you may in your mind and heart have questions and concerns about the character and the competence of the surgeon. Suffering can feel a lot like surgery. And it begs the question, can I trust the character of the surgeon and the competence of the surgeon? Can I trust God in the midst of this? Can I trust that he's good? Peter says, entrust their souls to a faithful creator. It's interesting. That that is one of the few times in the New Testament, one of the very few times that God is referred to as creator in the New Testament. And what an appropriate use of creator at this point. Peter says, the one who made you, who designed you, is the one who is therefore qualified to remake you and to fix you. There's a man who was stumped. He couldn't figure out why he couldn't get this software to run on his old Macintosh laptop. It was Mac Bibleware software, and he he was trying to get this Bible software to run on his Macintosh laptop. He couldn't get it to work. He had tried hours and hours, and his wife finally says, why don't you just call the company? 
just call him and get some help. He refused. He worked some more, and finally he's like, okay, I can't fix it. So he calls this company, the software company, and says, I need help. And the person on the other line gave him a, a, a name and a phone number to call and said, this person will get you fixed. And, and he was skeptical, but the name, she said, the name rung a bell. And so he picked up the phone and he called. And when he started talking to this person, he realized, too, you know, it all came together. This is actually the person that wrote the software, created the software, designed the software. And he said within a couple minutes, he gave him a couple uh, things to do, and within minutes, it was fixed, and the software was running on his computer because he went back to the person who had actually created the software and therefore knew how to fix it. How easy is it in our suffering? When we're in the midst of painful trial, how easy is it for us to entrust or to set before, right? To set our lives before anything and anyone other than the one who made us. You can set your suffering before the bottle. You can set your suffering before the computer screen, your iPhone screen. You can set your suffering in the Google search bar and try to get Google to figure it out. Or you can set your suffering on the altar of every possible self-help technique and principle. And the problem is that all of those are Band-Aids. They're Band-Aids. They, they may make the pain go away for a moment so you don't have to live with it, but they're Band-Aids. They don't have the ability, the power to remake you in the midst of this painful trial. Entrust your souls, entrust your suffering, your lives into the hands of the one who made you because the one who made you, who designed you intricately knows exactly how to remake you. And he's promised to do that. And he has an impeccable track record. Just look at how he cared for his son, Jesus Christ, in his suffering and in his trial. God the Father cared impeccably and perfectly for his son Jesus as he walked through sufferings and trials on your behalf. And here's the astonishing truth of the gospel. The gospel says that if you trust Christ, you trust his death on your behalf and you trust his resurrection on your behalf, that you get the exact same care and treatment from God the Father as the Son, Jesus. God received and continues to receive. So you can rejoice in the midst of painful trial. You can rejoice because God is with you. His spirit rests upon you and he's remaking you. He's remaking you. So that one day, if you're in Christ, you'll arrive in glory. When, when the glory of Christ is revealed and he returns and you'll see him face to face. And your joy will be, you can't even imagine what your joy will be on that day. And that joy actually 
pours into your life as a foretaste now through painful trials. Let's pray. Father, we confess the pain, the difficulty of the journey in a broken world. Father, we confess the pain of suffering, getting what we don't want and not getting what we want. Yet, Father, we understand that painful trial is evidence of your presence. It's evidence of blessing. It's evidence that the Spirit of glory rests upon us. It's evidence that we're being remade. And Father, we trust you. Pray that you would help those maybe here or, or online with us that are feeling like they're, they're walking up to the edge of the cliff, that the sandblasting imagery is about to, about to push them over. Oh, Father, would you reveal your presence in a very powerful way to them, that they would know your presence, that they would experience your joy, that you'd lift their eyes to glory that you would help them understand that this painful trial is but the landmark that is a reminder of the path to glory. Oh, Jesus, come quickly. Come quickly to your broken and painful world, to our lives, that your glory would be revealed. We pray this all in Christ's name.